Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and as somebody who likes alliteration, I have three Ps on my mind. Personally, I'm capitulating to the reality that the holiday season is here. It's unavoidable, the commercials and all of the onslaught of marking that occasion. And so that is a reality I'm coming to terms with. Politically, nearly everyone is wrong in how they're interpreting the Virginia election results. We might get into some of that here today on the podcast. And the third P, podcast-wise, I'm excited, thankful, and perplexed by the passage of time that we are marking our two-year anniversary of the podcast. And I'm just thinking back on all the YouTube videos I was watching about sound waves and how to soundproof a room and whatnot, and my fumbling experiments with acoustics and holding up in the closet, see if that would help. And so we seem to have hopefully refined it, and I hope that we've created an enjoyable and useful product for all of our listeners. And joining me to mark this auspicious occasion is my co-host, Charlene Chang, and our East Coast friend and data doctor, Dr. Julie Martinez-Ortega. How are you both? And as, as parents, I suspect you both must be used to how fast time flies. And Julie, I, I have watched your child grow up from a small <laughs> child to a near college heading off person. And so as you reflect back on the podcast, uh, what's one thing both of you were taking away from our two years of doing this? Well, I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm super excited and happy because the podcast has been such a fun thing to do, right? We get to sit and talk about issues that matter and share that with people. So then I end up running into people, you know, or getting in touch with somebody on Facebook I haven't seen for a while. And they're like, oh yeah, I love that thing you're doing. So it's actually been a really great way to be in touch with a lot of people, particularly because those two years spanned so much of, you know, the pandemic and whatnot. But yeah, you're right. Time flies. I can't believe it. I feel like it's still this new thing that, you know, Steve got this crazy idea and we're just going to like try it, but here we are and it's happening and it's real. And, you know, we've got um, an incredible group of listeners, people that come back on a regular basis. And I think that's, it's great. It's great to be in, in a dialogue with folks out in the world. We're we're a long way from the podcasting for dummies book, which (laughs) we literally did actually buy and read and which was very helpful. People want to start a podcast. And in the beginning, I didn't feel like a dummy. (laughs) I I remember being just like, oh, my God, I have no clue. We're just going to jump in and do it. And I am nervous. I was thinking back to the first time we went into a studio to practice record. and I was so nervous. my, My mouth was dry and I wanted to just keep like re you know repeating and re re you know taking different takes and now it just feels like home well i have so many things that i just appreciate about our experience over the past 2 years but it's also just so nice to get to talk to julie who i adore and admire and just to get to chat with her and hear her talk and get her to share her thoughts from her amazing brain But yeah, just two years, I just can't believe it. So I was thinking just how two years, especially because of the times we live in and what those two years have been these past particular two years. Two decades. (laughs) Exactly. So on one hand, it feels somewhat like yesterday, but also feels like a surreal long time, like a surreal time in another dimension. To think when we first recorded 
it was pre-COVID and that's becoming harder and harder to remember what that was like. Um, And, and that it was Trump years. It was like the thick of those Trump years that were so hard where I would wake up every morning with like heart palpitations going, I'm going to check my phone and just start scrolling. And it would be some crazy headline, something crazy that he just did or tweeted or, and just feeling that it was total doom scrolling. It felt like I kind of its own groundhog's day, even before the pandemic and just to have that reality of what it was like to live in a country where there was, you know, white nationalist fascist in charge every day, plus a person who just wasn't stable. Yeah. Uh, so that was just two years ago when we were starting it. And I feel that for me personally, it's been such a great source of strength and inspiration and comfort and not feeling alone during those times and these times that continue to think about our listeners who are out there and they're amazing listeners and they constantly give us feedback and tell us you know what they're getting out of it and what they'd like to hear more of and our amazing guests so i just want to say also big shout out the range of guests that we've had mm-hmm. including what i just love is getting what we call our hidden figures on continue to inspire me and help me wake up to whatever is on the news and remind myself that there are incredible people out there, incredibly brave, courageous, bold, fierce people out there who are doing way harder work than I am and have been for in, you know, many of them been doing it for like a decade or more on the ground, continuing to push and create positive change in this country. And just to give you a sense of, I was trying to wrap my head around like what happened in 2019. For one, I was remembering like, I don't think I even, I don't, can't remember if I use Zoom. I, I guess I must have done it a little bit, mm, but yeah. to think about how it, it was such a small, small part of our life and now right. it's such a big part of our life. I also Googled the terms like what happened in 2019. In 2019, the season finale of Game of Thrones was on. And that seems like a lifetime ago. I, yeah. I remember being really into that show and really excited about the season finale, which was actually kind of disappointing, but we're not going to get into that today. <laughs> Just when when you think about culturally what was happening then, um, it seems really long ago. I also just cannot end my little speech here without giving huge props to a big part of what makes this work, this podcasting work so amazing and fun, is our incredible team. And that includes our terrific rock star producer, Olivia Parker, rock star writer, Fola Onifade, our rock star assistant, April Elkier, and our rock star sound engineer, Mario. So thank you to our entire team. Yes, thank you. This the behind the scenes, as everybody knows, I have Jesse Jackson quote for everything, right? Yeah. So it is. I, I always joke that <laughs> yes. our podcast could be a drinking game. And yes. one of the things is you drink whenever Sue says Jesse 1988 Jackson. Democratic <laughs> Convention for the national audience. Jesse says, all of you think you are seated, but you're really standing on someone's shoulders. Mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, Rosa Parks, the mother of the civil rights movement, and brings her up onto the stage mm-hmm. with him. This podcast stands on the shoulders of the people you just mentioned. And we're very, very Mm -hmm. grateful. And with that, let's turn to our main topic of today's episode. As you mentioned earlier, Steve, we're going to talk a lot today about last week's election results and the implication for next year, 2022, midterms and beyond. We'll be doing something really fun and different today. We're going to be answering listener submitted questions. And we've promised our younger team members to not call it a mailbag. <laughs> Steve and I really want to call it a mailbag. And they were like, you guys, this is not what we call it a mailbag. I have not made that <laughs> promise. I would just I would just say 
we have had that discussion. <laughs> we were like back in the day. Listen, listeners of radio, yeah, <laughs> listeners of radio shows would write their questions on pieces of paper and mail them in. So, but we're going to do that for the first time because uh, many of you sent in questions. So, thank you to everyone who sent us questions. We'll only get to a few today, but we're going to try that, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Before, oh, but before we get into last week's election results, I wanted to. Steve, uh, to talk to you about some of your recent publications, your recent writings, you have a piece in The Nation and The Guardian, and then later we'll get to some more questions from listeners. So Steve, regarding your writing, I was laughing to myself thinking how you had finished your manuscript and you handed it in. It's what, it's like 200 plus pages. Yeah. And you were like, okay, now I can rest. And in politics, and it never ends. And so you were just last week, doing more writing, wrote a piece in The Nation about lessons learned from Virginia's gubernatorial election. You had a long, great Twitter thread pushing back on New York Times reporter Reed Epstein's argument that the Virginia election results, you know, basically he was saying that they proved that winning by increasing turnout is a myth. And then you wrote a piece for The Guardian talking about this sort of quote unquote populism debate, which again, we've talked about in a previous episode about Democratic data analyst David Shore and other what we call two male, two pale, really high profile data analysts slash democratic consultants who have this notion about uh, popularism and how that's the way to win. And you had a lot to say about that. So Steve, I I just want to check in with you and say like, did you think you were going to get a longer break from your writing than you actually did after you handed in the manuscript? Oh, no, absolutely. I, I, well, I married to a mental health professional and shout out to mental health professionals out there. And I do have a, you know, therapist who helps me guide me, you know, and the person to talk to about stuff. And so after some of the manuscript, she likes this. I want you to look up in the dictionary, the word rest and see all the things that they have in there. But then there's this, you know, onslaught of all of this high profile, high value, highly, um, consequential wrong analysis, the whole popularism piece, 6,200 words in the New York Times on that. And so it's like writing and writing and trying to refute all of this stuff is kind of like the opposite of being able to rest. And so it's like twice I've been able to like get out and go run around like we said in San Francisco and all like, well, this is kind of rest, but it's like literally been like just two or three days because I've been trying to refute all of this stuff that's actually out there. Yep. And incorrect. <laughs> no rest for the weird. I remember when you posted that, you said, oh, this is what they mean by rest. And pretty much the, the couple of days after that, you were getting requests to write these pieces. And of course, the ele- yep, election ends. day happened. So talking about last week's elections, let me first ask you uh, one of the questions from the audience. In um, our mailbag? In our not mailbag, <laughs> e-bag. <laughs> uh, this is from one of our listeners. His name is Tim Obi in New Orleans. Thank you, Tim. Tim writes, I really appreciate Steve's insight on the Democratic Party's spending and the fact that they don't actually spend money on increasing voter turnout. I'm shocked that all the politicos who argue against getting more people out to vote as a way to win don't engage more with that point. It's like discounting something that hasn't even been tried. Why do you think they're so adamant on digging their heels in this way? So basically, Tim is saying, make it make sense. <laughs> I wish it could make sense, but I could rest and then I could just go for runs and not have to listen and follow sports, and not have to worry about all this craziness that's out there. And what's particularly baffling about it, because I think you have made this point, Charlie, and you've been it's like, I thought we won, right? In terms yeah. of November, right? That's like the nature and the volume and the tone of all of these analyses 
are all about why we lost, but we won. And so you take that and then you would think a normal, sensible way to proceed would be, well, where we won, how did we win? And let's understand that and let's do more of that. But you, you see very little understanding of that right? Is that there's all this like, oh, well, in this one precinct was a number, lot of Venezuelans in Florida. We didn't do as well as we thought we would, which is literally what David Shore is pushing. Or in South Texas, we didn't do as well as we thought we were going to do. But we won Georgia. And the one pickup in the House of Representatives that we had for the Democrats in 2020 was in Georgia. So you would think that we would try to understand better how we accomplished that and look at actually replicating that. And it's not complicated. And that Stacey Abrams has written at length about it. She has a whole piece in the New York Times about what she did over a 10-year period. And it may take a decade to flip your state, but do it anyways. And so Stacey said in 2013, there's a million plus non-voting people of color. I'm going to try to get as many of them as possible to vote. And so that's when she created New Georgia Project, encourage other people to go into and take over the Democratic Party and have it be a more of an entity with a presence in all these counties across the state. And they steadily increase voter turnout and participation. Stacey got more votes than any Democrats ever run for office in the history of Georgia to that time, laid the foundation, built the volunteers, the staff, the activists all over the state, increased turnout, flipped the Georgia 7 House seat in outer Atlanta, won those two Senate races that flipped control of the United States Senate and flipped the state for Georgia for Biden. So that should be the lesson that we have taken. But in terms of like why they're not, I do actually think that it goes to implicit bias, frankly, and that somebody, somebody from Texas, Julie, was a um, white consultant from Texas, a Democratic person. He says in his Texas drawl, as human beings, we tend to like people who are like us. And I think that is a very mm-hmm. fundamental human phenomenon. But then if you take that and you then have a, what I have historically called near apartheid like situation in terms of who runs and funds democratic campaigns, who we kind yeah. of jokingly refer to as the RAF, that it's largely white men who then have the lens and the limited worldview and set of experiences that they have. And so they continue to think that the most important votes that are out there are the votes of white people. And they underappreciate the number of potential progressive whites who are out there and who have been consistently voting with us. They underappreciate the extent to which white people can be with us, and they dramatically under appreciate the number and significance of voters of color who are out there. And this is the cultural myopia that they actually have in terms of where they focus. And it's just remarkable is that they completely ignore, look away from where we want to try and define in some like very small spreadsheet cell without looking at the entire spreadsheet, a data point that they can try to extrapolate. But fundamentally, in terms of trying to to answer uh, Tim's question, I do think it's a reflection of the myopia, the cultural incompetence and life experience myopia of those who run and fund campaigns, which is why we have to change who actually has control of these multi-million dollar checkbooks. If Stacey Abrams controlled the hundreds of millions of dollars that Democrats and progressives have, we would have won Virginia because we would have had more of an infrastructure voter turnout operation. And we would and will win in 2022. So that's the struggle that the progressives have heading into next year. Speaking of, you know, looking to ways 
I, I totally uh, hear what you're saying. And it's just so maddening that the, this takeaways from last week seem to be, oh, let's keep doubling down on hand wringing around swing voters, especially white swing voters. But what I think I have seen a few pieces, not enough, but we're pointing out the wins of last week. And granted, the, the Virginia gubernatorial election was a bigger race in that it was a statewide race. I just keep reminding people, let's not lose sight of the fact that the wins that did happen at the local level are incredible wins and meaningful, historic. And it's it's almost like for if you were to reach a lot of the political coverage, it's like it's almost like they didn't happen or, you know, it, it's always like almost like a side note. And there's this kind of almost dismissal of, yeah, yeah, well, those that's great. But oh, my God, we lost the gubernatorial race in Virginia, which, by the way, was the birthplace place of Confederacy and was red for a long time. So even though that was definitely disappointing news to, you know, have Virginia flip back to red and Republicans won that race. Steve, I know that you in the last newsletter highlighted several wins, namely local races across the country, again, where historic progressive victories took place. And that included cities like Cleveland and Boston, just to name a few. Uh, Again, Cleveland, which is your hometown, uh, where Justin Bibb was elected and he was how old again? Quite young, maybe. He's in his thirties, yeah. One of the young, youngest, if not youngest, mayor there to be elected, and in Boston, Michelle Wu, who is identifies as Taiwanese American, is a progressive woman, Asian American woman, and she was the first Asian American and first woman mayor to be elected to be mayor of that city in Boston, which has a three hundred ninety-one year history. By the way, what can we learn from those races? How were those races won? And what does it say that those particular individuals were able to win their races? Yeah, and I'm glad you're you're flagging that because I think that again, people are missing the forest for the for the trees, and not, as well as misinterpreting the specifics of the of the Virginia race, which is just to you know reiterate again is that the Republicans got out their voters more than Democrats got out our voters. Right, it was just a year ago that we won Virginia by ten points, and then the the Republicans did a much better job of turning their voters back out again than the Democrats did. But the reason you miss people miss those kinds of signs of hope and trends in terms of where things are actually he- heading is because they over do overlook that these different local races, right? And so, and then this gets back to the I mean, this RAF phenomenon of is also applied in the media in that there's a lens of those who control the biggest platforms that shape public opinion and interpretation tend to be more, you know, center, center left at best white men. The default perspective immediately and quickly gravitates towards, well, everything's doomed for Democrats and everything should be, you know, about moderate and, you know, non-significant social change, particularly regarding racial justice. So Ohio had a special election, right? We talked, we had Nina Turner as a guest on the podcast. She lost um, to Chantel Brown in that primary election. And everybody was saying, oh, well, see, this this shows that uh, progressive politics doesn't work. We should move away from progressive politics. Nina, Nina was too left and that people wanted a more moderate choice. And people in Cleveland wanted a more moderate choice. In this mayoral election, Justin Bibb ran against a moderate to, you know, democratic conservative white guy from the white side of town, West side, Justin from the East side, East side, and is very progressive and he won. And so that does show that there's an appetite in, you know, cities and a city like Cleveland for progressive leadership, young of color, progressive in terms of what prevailed in the Cleveland mayoral election over a very explicit, much more 
David Shore friendly, you know, traditional moderately conservative Democrat. And similarly in Massachusetts is that people are missing also that these state level wins are the but the future of politics and the future of candidates for higher offices as well. And so Michelle Wu, who was uh, literally a student of uh, Elizabeth Warren when she was in uh, Michelle was in college, is going to be a rock star in politics in Massachusetts and in this country. And it's going to change the face of political leadership, but also change the political priorities and policy. She's extremely progressive in terms of the agenda of what she'll be actually moving forward. And let's not forget, Massachusetts has a Republican governor and it's an extremely democratic state. So she could be a future gubernatorial candidate and that she can really make Boston into an example of what progressive multiracial governance looks like to continue to make the case around how we can assemble a majority that wins and governs despite the continued naysaying from those who control the public opinion platforms and the dollars relating to elections. It's it's definitely all really exciting. And I encourage all the listeners, uh, if you are not a subscriber yet to our newsletter, to subscribe. But if, if you did subscribe lately and uh, you were able to check out that list of people that we elevated in terms of those who did win in last week's election, definitely go learn more about them. There are just some incredible people who just won in the last election day. And I just don't think people are checking them out enough. And it is really important that what you just said is like what Michelle Wu and Justin Bibb, other ways that they continue to want to serve as public servants and and run for different offices, just the potential that's there, it can really give you a lot of hope instead of focusing on those you know situations where we've lost or obviously there's no shortage of things in politics, aspects of politics right now to look at that can really bring you down if you're a progressive, if you're a Democrat. And so speaking of one of those aspects, let, let us then turn to the Virginia gubernatorial election results. And with that, I'm going to ask one of uh, another listener's question. This is from Hannah in Richmond, Virginia. She, uh, I'll give this one to Julie because I think Hannah's question could really use a Julie answer. And um, Julie, this is her question. How are you thinking about Yunkin's win last week? Isn't it evidence that Democrats are losing support, especially among important demographic groups like Latino men and white women? Well, if you've been watching television or listening to the radio much in the past week, I could see why you'd think that. But I feel like we're not getting the sort of analysis and coverage that's actually needed to understand what happened. So first of all, (laughs) Democrats got more votes in this election than we have in the past few elections among Latinos, right? So we're not at all in a situation where we're losing support among Latinos. I mean, we're, we're nowhere near that situation at all. And I think it, there's definitely people out there who have some interest in, in um, you know, advancing a narrative about Latinos not being as solidly behind Democrats as uh, as we have known them to be year after year for you know several decades now. One of the things I think is worth pointing out is that the majority of Latinos in Virginia live in the Northern Virginia part of the state, right? 
And that's where the whole CRT school fights, you know, who's supposed to de- determine uh, what our children learn, all of that. Critical, was, critical, critical race theory. Yes, things, yes, exactly. And I mean, people were just being inundated. I mean, even just being over here 10 miles away in Maryland were exposed to that. It was it was intense. So the fact that Latinos didn't drop much in terms of the margin of support, I mean, I think it moved by maybe one point or something. To me, that's a signal that there's incredible resilience among Latino voters, even in the midst of a real onslaught of misinformation, which is basically what was happening for a lot of folks, right? Latinos in across the country, but you know, definitely in Virginia, are more likely to have children of school age in those K-12 schools, right? So there's a already a predisposition to be interested in well, what is happening in the schools. I think that the lack of a drop of support probably says a lot about the fact that that wasn't their issue, right? They're not concerned about CRT or, you know, the trans issues. They're just trying to make sure their kids can make it through high school and have access to supportive teachers and all of the, the supports and things that are needed for their kids to be able to use education as a stepping stone, right, to a better life. And I think that it's really easy to sort of tell a story that's like, oh, yet again, we're losing support among Latinos, but there's really, there's just really nothing there to support it. And I also pulled numbers just on white women to see how, um, you know, how they moved. And in the last governor's race there, the Democrat Northam got 48% of support from white women with white women being 32% of the voters. And in 2021, it did drop a bit. It dropped by five points down to 43%. And white women were a larger share this time. So 37% of the voters were white women. And so um, definitely there was some movement there. Uh, Again, I think that that school issue was particularly targeted to uh, moms. And so you're seeing that sort of you know, mother piece come through in there. But, you know, as we always see, you know, there's there's still a solid bottom that we don't see white women dropping below, uh, even in a situation like we had where they, you know, they really came at, at McAuliffe hard with the, the school and the, you know, taking care of our children sort of arguments. Let me, I want to actually emphasize a couple of things of what, what Julia was saying and then I think we tried last year to talk about this issue of margins versus raw number using a Thanksgiving analogy in terms of who shows up. So I'll try to put that into your head for a moment, Julie, as we as, we, <laughs> as I make this other point. But the first point that Julie had said that I think they really needs to, that's completely overlooked in the media and needs to be much better appreciated is that the Latino vote went up. So the number of people who voted for the Democratic nominee for governor increased in 2021 over what the number was in 2017. And so because of this un- misunderstanding of this issue of the margins between Democrats, people are thinking like, oh, Latino support is down. But the number of people who voted Latino went up. And so that's a critical thing to understand. And then to, fundamentally to understand here's what happened in Virginia is that the number of white Republicans went way up. Mm-hmm. And so that's the dynamic of what actually transpired. And then that flips over to this piece around the critical race theory, which is more than just critical race theory. It's a, it was basically a racial call to arms around what this country is, what the state is, and what we should be teaching our children. Mm-hmm. We should be teaching them a reality, the realities of race and racism. And that 
it's I mean, ironic isn't even a strong enough word for the state of Virginia, which has a history that included in prior periods when there was a alarm about the diminishing status and centrality of whites within the country, literally picked up guns and started murdering people and launching the Civil War. When the Brown versus Board of Education was passed in 1954 and 1950s, Prince Edward County in Virginia, not only are we not going to integrate our school district, we are going to shut the entire school district down and not have any public schools. And so this is, which they did for two years, and they set up their own kind of private system for for, for the white children. So this notion about Virginians being alarmed about racial transformation is nothing new. And that's what transpired in this election. But, yeah, it was a tried and true tactic. And exactly. this was just the latest version of it. Exactly. And that's critical, no pun intended, for people to understand heading into 2022 about this critical race theory. They think it's a useful you know, code word to inflame white people. And so the Democrats are going to have to come up with a way to actually address and believe that people will want to understand the full, the full reality of the country. And so um, can I ask both of you just to help me wrap my head around this. How do you explain how the political media is painting this narrative or telling this story about what sounds like Latino voters who previously voted Democrat, this time voted Republican, uh, white women voters who previously voted Democrat, this time voted Republican. Is that the case or is the reality something else? Well, in the if you look at sort of If you looked at every voter as an individual, no, we're not. There's no evidence that, you know, Charlene voted for the Democrat for Northam and this time came back and voted for Yunkin. There's no indication that that we are losing voters who are switching parties at an individual level. Steve spoke about the fact that turnout, you know, brings a different set of people into the pool that are going to cast their ballots, right? And so you can have just as many voters there who are intending to cast their ballots in favor of the Democrats as you had in prior years or even more. In fact, there were more people who showed up to vote Democrat this time than in 2017, four years ago. You can have that happen and still lose because you could have even more. You could have a a surge, an even bigger surge on the other side, right? And that's how Trump won in 2016 in terms of surging with people that we joke about it as like people came out of the woodwork, but really it's like, you know, a lot of people who were first time voters or very infrequent voters, they got the red meat and they showed up for some more on election day. So let me just take a stab at in terms of the pivoting off of the red meat comment. I was trying to think about how to articulate this in terms of this margin piece. And so I don't know if this fully makes sense if it fully holds up and Julie can clarify for me and then we do need to move on from there. But I can think about, you know, if you were to look at like a family, the level of support within a family, right, between vegetarians and uh, meat eaters and trying to that's, gauge at things. That's, fam- that's my family. My right. Vegetarian. <laughs> and so you invite maybe it's 50 50 in terms of who's coming to Thanksgiving. But then say someone's car breaks down or they can't get there, one of the vegetarians. So there are fewer vegetarians who are actually able to make it to the Thanksgiving dinner. But then what the media would do is they would then look at, oh, instead of it being five meat eaters and five vegetarians, which is 50 per 50, 50, 
only two vegetarians showed up. So the support within this family for vegetarianism has dropped dramatically is what the media would conclude <laughs> rather than that there's not the same number of people actually turning out. So I don't know if that's fully covered, but that's the nature of what the incorrect analysis is. And mm -hmm. the consequences are enormous, which is why we have to keep kind of going at it. I, I guess in Virginia, to stick with that, since since it sounds like the veg, let's call the Democrats the vegetarians, <laughs> because probably statistically there are more Democratic veg vegetarians. There actually was like this surge of vegetarians who showed up, like all the cousins and extended, you know, second cousins and third cousins. But but it was such a going to be such a delicious turkey that um, more of the meat eaters, you know, other family members, there's just larger numbers of those who came out that year on on that side. Right. Right. More more than the vegetarians. <laughs> yes. Even though the vegetarians all showed up, the same vegetarians from last year. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's get to another question about the Virginia race. This one comes from Carlo in Berkeley, California, and that's my current hood where I live. Shout out to Berkeley. Carlo asks, in light of the results in Virginia, does critical race theory, we just touched a little bit upon this, but he asked, does critical race theory and the fight for racial justice need a rebranding or do progressives need to double down and better explain the message? Also, generally speaking, do you think the Democratic Party is going to shy away now from a more liberal agenda in the midterms heading into next year, 20? 22 midterms. Yeah, well, so we touched on this somewhat in terms of the, the critical race theory piece, but just to kind of put a kind of put a finer point on it, and that Joy Reid talked about this election night. I thought that she was really sharp on it. So let me just say what she said. She, she says, the Democratic Party has not developed the reflex of defending Black voters. They don't know how to openly defend them because they are so afraid of offending that white suburban voter who might be uncomfortable on race issues. And so that's the box that they were put in, in terms of this whole critical race theory about, and so trying to say like, no, 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 we're not saying you should, you should talk about race, et cetera. And so first of all, I mean, the fun, the interesting thing about this is what I think maybe we should talk more about is that this displays a lack of faith in white, in white people, right? So there's clearly exactly. the majority of whites are mm -hmm. going to be voting against Democrats as they have every year since the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965. But there is a meaningful and dependable core of whites who have always been more supportive of multiracial society. Go all the way back to Thomas Jefferson trying to, well, he has his own issues, but still trying to put slavery into the Declaration of Independence as something we were against, which then got put out. And then into the abolitionists all the way up to, to the civil rights movement and today. So that gets this issue in a more liberal agenda or not liberal agenda. Now, that's what we saw after uh, the brief racial reckoning after George Floyd was murdered, is that there are lots of people who want there to be justice and equality within this country. And people want there to be racial justice and equality within this country. And you think that we should actually be teaching and educating our children about the reality of this country's history, which then create leads towards what its actual potential and possibilities could be. So that is a fight that the Democrats are going to have to engage. And there's primary lesson from Virginia is that trying to ignore it and change the subject doesn't work. Part of the reason they did that is they didn't believe they could win it, but they can and they will. And when you frame it as that this is an existential battle over what kind of nation we are, which is what Youngkin did, which got the white vote out, that's when you get the voters of color to come out. Everyone saw the existential threat of Trump and came out in very large numbers. When that happened, we won. And that's what we need to do heading into 2022. And it's got to be directly taking on this 
fight with a racially explicit, unapologetic approach that this is a multiracial country. It has a very troubled racial history, but we can and will do better if we will face up to it and tackle the task. Okay, so I know we're coming to the end of our show, but I wanted to see if we could just do two more questions, rapid fire style, and just I'll ask the question and you and Julie just give us some quick answers, whatever comes to tougher head. So the first one is a question from Natalie Vu in San Francisco. She asks, what is the most effective way of communicating to progressive and voters of color the imminent threats posed by the opposition now that Trump's PR and news coverage of Trump and his presence have been blunted by most social media platforms blocking his account. Well, I'll I'll start with really quickly. That's one thing that's fascinating. And I think actually, you know, obviously there's probably some problems with Twitter, but they are to be commended in terms of deplatforming Trump. I mean, he had almost 90 million people he could directly communicate with all of his like lies and false information and rally and call them to arms. So taking that away has been a significant weakening of, frankly, the white nationalist movement in this country. But I think the other part of it is that it also takes away the sense of urgency because mm-hmm. it's not like we're not doom scrolling every single day, right, in the same way. So we can kind of be lulled into a sense of complacency. And so that is, I think, where it then becomes more challenging. But fundamentally, we, we have the presidency of the United States and the bullet pulpit that goes with that. And so that's where there has to be more of a sense of urgency and continued engagement in using those platforms to highlight. And so all of the people we have who have platforms, whether whether it's media or elected officials, need to be continuing to sound the alarm about the attacks that are happening because they are still happening. Yeah, I, I think one really critical thing is we have to be talking about the legislation that's on the table mm-hmm. uh, at all times and how that directly connects to the child that you're rushing to go pick up from daycare or the um, you know grandparent that you're worried about, um, you know, how are they going to be safe and have a good place to go for Thanksgiving because you can't get home this year. Like those are the things like connecting it to the people we care about, how policy gets passed or not. Like the, I, I just feel like there's this um, we have this opening, as Steve said, in the sense that, you know, we're not just so focused constantly on the latest insane thing that's coming out of you know his Twitter account, but it we're not taking full advantage of it. And we're not telling the stories of all the people who are still in their house, right? That didn't lose their house um, because mortgages were adjusted and, you know, people were able to stay in the house even if they lost their jobs during the pandemic. Like all these different things that have huge implications for you know, family well-being and people's ability to kind of keep their life on track. We're not taking enough credit for that. And and I think in terms of what's already passed and then in terms of what's on the table, because we're in this really critical point now, you know, as we're sort of halfway through the two big pieces of legislation that Biden's trying to to get across the line. Right. Just real quickly on that, too, we talked about the who runs and funds campaigns and how money gets spent. Putting resources in the hands of the groups, the hidden figures, the New Virginia Majority, the New Georgia Project, uh, Lucha in Arizona, Texas Organizing Project, those groups are in communication with those people that Julia is just talking about. And so funding them to do this communication is also an important part of the mix. And lastly, I'll ask the last question, which does touch upon what you were talking about, Julie. 
the next question. It's pretty straightforward. I think it captures how many of us are feeling about Biden's infrastructure plan at this point. This question is from Aiden from Denver. Aiden asks, what's up with Biden's Build Back Better plan? Are Democrats just screwed at this point? (laughs) We need Aiden to get in his car and drive to Arizona (laughs) and and be at the the office, the state office for uh, cinema. No, I mean, I think this is a time for all the pushing on those organizations that are out there that need that funding to really be rallying people around why they need to hold their elected officials accountable, right? I think, like I was saying earlier, that the people in Virginia, the Latinos in particular, were really resilient. I think that it's actually quite amazing when you think about what they're seeing happen, right? Here's this senator who is elected by Latinos. She could not be in office if she did not have their support in the state of Arizona, right? That's a good reminder. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. And and yet she's just, mm-hmm. you know, acting as though that is not the constituency to whom she feels beholden. But she absolutely is and should be like, she will not win again without them. Right. And so I think that these are the kind of things that have to really get highlighted right now, or we will be screwed. <laughs> I would want to just to offer a sense of perspective around this as well. I mean, I was listening to an article about the progressives and how they were rec- reflecting upon how when Obama took office in O. when he won in 08 and the planning in 09, there was a, a decision that we could not move anything that would cost more than a trillion dollars. The number had to be under a trillion dollars. And this was the major economic crisis at the, at the, at the time of what he was facing. The infrastructure package, which I think progressives are just skipping over, we have already now moved $3 trillion just this year. Mm-hmm. And I, I submitted a piece to The Guardian, which I think they'll hopefully they'll run, but trying to make this point about, as part of a panel they're going to be having, that the reason we have bad infrastructure in this country is because of the lack of political will, because people don't want public money going to things that might help people of color. So then you look at things like the lead pipes in uh, in Flint, Michigan, which largely you know mm. affected communities of color and African Americans in particular. Mm-hmm. Now we pass the infrastructure bill, we're going to replace every single lead pipe in this country. Yeah, and so that's, that's we should not not appreciate the significance of this bill, as well as the back thing we were saying about loading lessons from Georgia. None of this would be possible. None of the $3 trillion from the original bill in, in March to this would have been possible had we not won those two Senate seats in Georgia. So exactly. I think this is a major accomplishment, and we need to also keep pushing to get the rest of the package through. So that was really fun. I, I liked getting questions from the listeners and maybe we'll do that again. That was just great to sort of build this episode, uh, a big chunk of it around answering listeners' questions and you guys out there. Thank you to everyone who submitted a question. Obviously, we couldn't get to all of them, but we wanted to thank you for participating and helping to make um, really put your thinking caps on and give us a sense of what's on your minds now and we can help, help you think through give you some perspective and our takes on especially that last week's election day results. And again, if you didn't get to uh, ask a question for this episode or you didn't get your question answered, remember you can always 
post your questions to us via our social media, either on Facebook or Twitter, and we will do our best to answer them in some way, if not directly on social media, to incorporate them into our next episodes. That's what we're we're here for is try to help you guys make sense of everything that's going on. Yeah, no, that was really fun. I did really enjoy doing that. I think we should we should we should definitely do it again. And I think this interaction with the listeners is a whole different um, you know, vibe and dynamic. And I think that just really want to appreciate people who uh, listen, all of the listeners and those who who send in questions as well. So that is all the time that we have today for the podcast. And um, this is a, a programming note that, well, A, reflecting back over the past two years, every two weeks without fail for the past two years, we have done a, uh, released a podcast episode. And so, but in the spirit of rest in the oncoming holidays, we are going to take a break over Thanksgiving. And so we will not have a podcast out that week. And we'll be back again in early December. Um, and again, we are, again, just so thankful to all of the, the our listeners for helping us hit this two-year benchmark. We hope you, you've enjoyed what we'll be able to provide and looking forward to many more uh, episodes and a few many more years into the future. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcast, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook, or signing up for our weekly newsletter at democracyincolor.com. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. Democracy in Color is now on Instagram as well. So you can follow us at, at Democracy Color. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by the behind the scenes rock star team that we give a shout out to again. I want to do uh, right now as well. Um, Olivia Parker is the producer. Support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. So endure the holiday commercials or enjoy them. Certainly enjoy your turkey stuffy and happy Thanksgiving in advance. Until next time, keep the faith and talk to you in December.